Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It is your local community radio station. Thanks for tuning in. And my name is Andy and I'll be hanging out with you for the next hour broadcasting on Jagra and Turable Country, which we do acknowledge the original and continuing owners of Today on the show, we are going to be talking about what is certainly the highest profile uh, issue regarding Aboriginal politics at the moment, which is the Voice to Parliament referendum. Of course, it is coming up next Saturday will be your time to vote. But after that, of course, the struggle for Aboriginal rights in this country will go on and we all have a role to play in that. But this will this is a significant moment and of course it has dominated the discourse around Aboriginal politics in recent times. And so I thought today on the Paradigm Shift we would do one last show delving into the topic of the voice to parliament and the referendum. And so today on the show we'll be hearing uh, from a few different voices, all of them Aboriginal, which I think is very important, right? If you want to work out what is the best way to um, vote in order to support the original inhabitants of this continent, then you should be listening to them, Aboriginal people, preferably get a few diverse voices, and that's what I'm trying to do today on the Paradigm Shift to help you out. And so we will be speaking to lawyer Bridget Karma, who is from the Uluru Dialogues. They've been going around the country for the last couple of years talking about the Uluru Statement for the Heart and why it is an important document for Australia that should be taken into account. I will also be speaking to Bo Spearham from Treaty Before Voice, who represents what has been called the progressive no or the sovereign no side of this debate. Um, Bo is saying that people should vote no in the referendum, but uh, support Aboriginal demands for self-determination in other ways. And finally, I'll speak to Mariki Onis, who is a long-term Aboriginal activist from down in Nam, Melbourne, who has been in the news a bit this week because she published an article saying that while she originally was with the Sovereign No side, she's changed her mind and now is um, voting yes and recommending other people do that. So I chat to Mariki about that as well. So there's lots coming up, um, really interesting topics and 
I'm keen to play it all for you. Of course, this is the second time I've done a show like this. A couple of months back, I did do a show where I spoke to Kirsty Stewart and Wayne Wharton. I will be uploading it as a podcast to whatever podcast player you use. And so you can tune into that as well. And you have no excuse not to be informed if you're listening to 4ZZZ here. So let's get into it. Uh, we'll start my chat with Bridget. My name is Bridget Thalma. I'm a proud Wiradjuri and Fijian woman. Um, on my mum's side, my connections are to the Kajigong River just outside of Mudgee and Wellington in New South Wales, uh, which is where my pop was born. He ended up uh, travelling to Lithgow where he met my nan and that's where I was also born and raised. Um, I'm currently the co-chair of the Uluru Youth Dialogue and legal support to the Uluru Dialogue. We will be talking about uh, the Uluru Statement and Voice to Parliament, but before we do, I'd just like to say I grew up swimming in the Kajigong River, and it's so great to hear it mentioned, and um, yeah, I grew up in Wiradjuri country as well, and so I acknowledge that place that raised me. <laughs> mm, it's a it's beautiful country, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, but let's move on to um, talking about... Uh, the Voice to Parliament, which is, of course, coming up very soon, and you, as part of the Uluru Dialogues, have been active in um, this whole campaign. Do you want to tell us about, I mean, what the Uluru Dialogues does and what's been your role? So the Uluru Dialogue uh, was established in 2017 after the Uluru Statement from the Heart was issued to the Australian people. Um, our mandate comes from that Uluru Statement from the Heart in order to work towards the reforms that it calls for, um, including voice and makarata. So currently we are on the first part of that, um, heading to a referendum on the voice to parliament, which is really exciting um, because we had you know, a lot of years there where governments didn't want anything to do with us um despite you know malcolm turnbull setting up the referendum council asking first nations people what we thought constitutional recognition meant to us and delivering the answer that was still rejected so what we've continued to do since 2017 is literally just talk to Aussies about what the Uluru Statement is and now um, specifically what the voice to parliament is. We are the leading education campaign um, advocating for the implementation of a voice to parliament aligned with the Uluru Statement from the heart. And so in your view um, as part of the Uluru Dialogues but also as an Aboriginal woman, what is the importance of having a voice to parliament? I think for me it's about the want to do better, um, be a better country, being able to have First Nations peoples at the table when decisions are being made about us will change you know, things substantially because we continue to see billions of dollars pumped into programs and services that don't work and don't achieve the outcomes that they're desired to when it comes to closing the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians or addressing health, housing, education. We know the reality of those uh, issues that disproportionately affect our communities. And politicians still fail to, um, you know, I guess, achieve the positive outcomes. And that's because we aren't listened to, our communities aren't listened to. So having a voice 
means having a seat at the table, First Nations people being able to inform the decision-making process based on our own lived experiences, our expertise about um, our communities, both the challenges that our communities face, but also the solutions that work in our communities, um, and being able to, uh, I guess, provide that advice when politicians are making decisions that affect our lives. We're able to provide, you know, that really in-depth um, knowledge about how we can actually work towards those positive outcomes. But of course, um, the voice and the call for a voice comes from First Nations people. And there's many different forms of constitutional recognition, but our, our people, First Nations people, know that something symbolic just won't change our lives. It won't change our country and we'll, we will continue to see what is currently happening, the status quo, which I think most Aussies agree is not good enough and that we want to do better. So the voice is a substantial reform. It's about structural reform and changing the relationship between the government and First Nations people and, and being able to sit down and work together towards better outcomes. Um, and that's really what the voice is about. The Yes campaign has consistently said that it's what Aboriginal people want and the majority mm -hmm. of Aboriginal people, but there has been quite a, a loud um, voice from, I guess, a sovereign Aboriginal people or a part of Aboriginal activism saying that it's tokenistic or it's not what's asked for or it won't mm -hmm. affect things on the ground. Um, how do you respond to this quite prominent voice? Yeah, so we know, um, based on polling and statistics, that over 80% of First Nations people do support the voice. And I think, um, you know, when non-Indigenous people are looking to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and our opinions on this, they want to make the right decision and they want to do what's best for First Nations people. Um, but the reality is that a majority of our community do support this. But of course, as a group of people, we're no different to any other group of people when it comes to, um, you know, different ideas, not all agreeing to one particular issue, whether it's the voice or something else. Um, we are very diverse in our community. So we already exist as over 250 plus distinct nations. We have diverse laws, cultures and languages. And then we're also individuals. So my um, position is that I think we all want the same thing. We want justice and peace. We just see different ways of getting to that point. And I know the Black Sovereignty Movement um, wants treaty first. And, um, you know, they want to be able to address um, the unfinished business of the past, just like people who support The Voice do. And the Uluru Statement from the Heart actually does call for treaty and truth as the second and third calls to action. But the reality is that treaty is very complex and our people have been calling for a treaty at a national level for many, many decades. We've had governments come and go who have committed to a treaty process but not delivered on that because they've been subject to the politics of the day yet again. So the voice is able to remove um, us and our issues from being subject to the politics of the day by always having a voice protected in the constitution through um, this referendum being successful. And treaty will still be on the table because we will continue to advocate for treaty, but there's no guarantee that we will see a government come to the table in the next 20, 30, maybe 50 years to sit down and negotiate that treaty. 
Um, and I think that is really important to understand that treaty is really complex. There's a lot of moving parts. It actually requires at least two parties to come to the table, First Nations people and the government. Um, I don't see the government having the, I guess, appetite to enter into that treaty negotiation process anytime soon. Um, we have a lot of questions on our side as well. Who are the right people, First Nations people, to uh, negotiate that treaty on behalf of us at, an, at a national level as well? How will it be resourced? How will we enter into a fair treaty negotiation process where we are equals at the table and able to negotiate that way. So I just want to note that there is huge appetite in the First Nations community for treaty, but there were also a lot of staunch treaty advocates at the regional dialogue process where consensus was formed on The Voice. And they understood that we can't wait and continue advocating for treaty for the next 20, 30, maybe 50 years whilst our people continue to die eight years younger than the rest of the population or whilst our kids continue to be um, incarcerated or uh, removed from families at disproportionate rates um, or whether, you know, we continue to see the Closing the Gap reports where there's huge gaps when it comes to education, health, um, housing and, you know, even access to clean water. These are the things that our communities face on a daily basis. Um, and we want to be able to start to work towards fixing them now rather than continuing to wait for, for decades to come when we get that treaty process or the government coming to the table. So I think there is a lot of strategic thinking that goes into this and at the core of it, it's wanting to be able to leave a better legacy for our kids or our future generations where if we start to address that disadvantage and that gap now, we will work towards better things and treaty might come, you know, in the future. But what we're focusing on now is the practical implementation of the voice and being able to put the solutions forward for our, for our communities. Part of, I guess, this whole experience has been for yourself and many other Aboriginal people, um, all of a sudden being in uh, media spotlight being discussed and becoming a kind of political campaigner which maybe hasn't been your role in the past. What's the process been like for you of entering into the public sphere in this way? I just see it as a part of the job to uh, get this over the line um, but it was never you know my intention to be in this spotlight. I come from um, you know, doing a law degree at university to wanting to work on law reform and, and having a research role um, under the guidance of Professor Megan Davis. So that's how I've really been introduced to all of the work. Um, and then as a young person, I felt the responsibility to set up the Uluru Youth Dialogue with my co-chair, Alira Davis, to give young First Nations people a platform and a space within the movement of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. But at the same time, we are deeply tied to the mandate of the Uluru Statement and the, um, the mandate that comes from the First Nations people that were consulted through that process, which is significant. So what we've been able to do is conduct ourselves in a way that is consistent with that and making sure that you know, this, these conversations that, being, that are being had are respectful and they're done out of good faith and love and the goal to work together for a better future. Um, but, it, I mean, it has been challenging, of course, and we never expected the amount of misinformation and blatant lies and disinformation that has played a key role in this 
uh, in this campaign towards a voice. Um, and that, I think that's been really challenging. I think as Australians, when we get the opportunity to vote on something, I think most people would hope to be able to make an informed decision. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of muddying of the waters through, I guess, creating confusion in the Australian people. And a part of the Uluru Dialogue work is making sure that we're getting out there, talking to many as many people as possible um, and just continuing to put forward the factual information and the key messages so that Aussies can make an informed decision at, at the end of the day. When you reflect back on the campaign as we come closer to the vote, I guess, like you said, it's been an incredible, complex and uh, dramatic kind of campaign. Do you mm. think... When you look at the the Yes campaign, are there things that you think, oh, maybe we could have done that differently to sort of uh, counter some of these things? Um, I think in the very beginning that the government really should have put protections in place to make sure that this campaign was conducted in a factual way. Um, you know, we've seen from examples across the world that social media in particular has played a big role in election results and, um, you know, this uh, referendum is no different. This is the first time that we're holding a referendum in the digital age and social media is playing a big role in that. We always knew that it would be a tool that we would have to harness and um, it is also a tool that can be used to our advantage but it's also being used by the No campaign as well to push uh, that misinformation, those lies out to people, including young people. Um, I think in the very beginning, it would have been really nice to see safeguards around the pamphlet um, that the Australian Electoral Commission issued on behalf of the politicians that voted yes and no to the referendum bill. Um, so that pamphlet puts forward the yes case and the no case on behalf of politicians. And that process there was no requirement for it to be fact-checked and I hope that can change after this referendum for future referendums because we should be able to make a decision based on factual information. Um, and also protections around the way that social media is used and again, um, the information that's put out there and what is considered fact and what is considered um, mistruths because that has played a big role in this as well. I think we've been able to ride the journey um, up until this point and we are working towards making sure that when we wake up on the 15th of October that we don't have any regrets. Um, so we're doing as much as possible and the Uluru Dialogue, you know, we're focusing on the education side of things and Yes 23, which is the official Yes campaign, um, you know, they're focusing on the door knocking and, and that kind of stuff and the letterbox dropping and being at the polling station. So we all complement each other's work um, and we're doing as much as possible to make sure that we don't uh, leave any stone unturned and that we wake up on the 15th with no regrets. All right, well, that's right. It's just over a week until the big vote. Do you have any final message for all the people who are going to be going to the polls? Yeah, I would encourage people that still aren't sure how they're going to vote um, to get online, Google it, head to the um, government website or ulurustatement.org or Yes23's website to find out that critical information to help you understand what this is all about. But it really is simple. 
we're being asked to vote yes or no to whether we want to change the constitution, our founding document of this country, to one, recognise the first peoples of this continent by two, establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. All that does is give us a say on matters that relate to us as first peoples. Um, I think we'll be a more inclusive country if we get this over the line and say yes to recognising us in the constitution and giving us a say on matters that affect us. Um, and as a country, we will all benefit that from that. Um, we'll be a more inclusive country. We'll be starting to address the unfinished business of the past and able to move forward and heal. Um, so please make an informed decision. If you don't know, then jump on our websites and have a look. All right. Thanks very much, Bridget. Thank you. Here on the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, we were just chatting to Bridget Tharma, who is a lawyer and who is from the Uluru Dialogues. She gave a, quite a good case for why, if you are concerned at all about the welfare of Aboriginal people or with paying our dues as settlers on this continent that was previously owned by Aboriginal people, um, then you should vote yes. But it's not the only perspective of Aboriginal people around this broad uh, piece of land because there have been quite a strong sovereign no campaign from a few different groups and uh, prominent Aboriginal activists. And so I spoke to Bo Spearham, who has been organising in Brisbane as part of Treaty Before Voice, and I thought I would get his perspective on uh, on this referendum. Bo Spiram, Gumarui Kuma, Marawari, Treaty Before Voice Convener and Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance Member. And we've spoken to you many times over the years on the Paradigm Shift, Bo, but on this occasion we're going to be talking about your work with Treaty Before Voice because there is a big referendum coming up next weekend and you have been campaigning in it, but campaigning that people vote no in the referendum. Do you want to tell us why? Uh, yeah. Well, for starters, you know, this form of constitutional inclusion or recognition, a, a lot of us have been advocating against it for so long, for like 11, 12 years now, or even more, you know, from when it was uh, recognised in constitutional recognition, you know, we've been advocating for much more than just the token mention or body. So in what in that case, what would the more look like? What do you think for you we should be working towards rather than a voice to parliament? Well, like this is the thing when we talk about the more, what does that look like? Uh, well, you know, uh, through this exercise, you know, over the last, what, seven, eight years, what we could have advocated for more of was deliberately left out of dialogues. And this was spoken about by you know some of the conveners of of the Uluru statement and also um you know uh the advisory body mob you know like they've come out and said you know that they've deliberately left out certain people in the community because it was harmful you know for this for their movement you know so from the beginning, <clears throat> this process has left out many other ideas and avenues that MOB have advocated for for so long. You know, on on the basis of like treaty and like the seven state concept from Michael Mantle, you know, to to true self determination. 
you know, to, to, to find other avenues, you know. Historically, you know, Treaty has been um, on the cards of black followers, on the minds of black followers, uh, and that has been ignored. I don't know if it's been ignored conveniently for the purpose of those that want to be the, the earpiece or the mouthpiece for the government and not necessarily uh, have a grassroots sort of movement that could empower, you know, so many people, irregardless of just the of having some selected few people who will be definitely empowered and, and very comfortable. So the campaign's been going on now, a lively sort of public campaign for months now. What's been your, your view of how that campaign has played out and I guess has your, have your views changed over the time of this sort of public debate? Our views have always stayed strong to voting no or just not voting at all, uh, have mistrust uh, in any process that the government sort of perceives to be wanting to create uh, some kind of change for blackfellas, you know, like uh, there's a quote and it's um, always question the actions and the motives of those who have taken so much from us. You know, uh, this has never been a grassroots movement. It's always been a top-down approach and it's always sought, you know, to eradicate the, the radical ideas and aspirations and the freedoms of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people uh, because if it does that, then what happens is we assimilate and once we assimilate, you know, these fellows get a continent for free and, you know, uh, the, the advocacy from the grassroots continues to remind uh, Australia that they're not going to get a continent for free uh, and that, you know, the blood that has been spilt by black fellows isn't in vain and that there needs to be more proper dialogue through this process, which has always been left out because, you know, it's a top-down approach. I mean, those who advocate for, yes, Aboriginal people, they talk about, like, the, the Uluru um, gathering reached a consensus, and it was, you know, they were gathered to come up with some tokenistic thing, which they did sort of reject when um, the Liberal government was still in power. But you don't sort of recognise that as as a voice of Aboriginal people that you think should be listened to? Um, well, for starters, like uh, a section of, of, of those that gathered uh, in Uluru walked out, you know, because they weren't heard or because they wanted to pro- protest the this process of, you know, not being heard and where the dialogues were going in the first place. Uh, and like I said before, the dialogues in, in the lead-up uh, was uh, orchestrated in a way that uh, filtered out, you know, proper community dialogues from a lot of other black fellas who would have uh, really had, you know, more community sort of input uh, and more community feel if that was the pr- process. And if that got to happen, you know, have grassroots, a lot of grassroots mob be a part of this. And when, and when grassroots mob were a part of this, uh, they were, like, snuffed out or they had to, you know, walk out of the room in protest. And, you know, that was only 200 people. Blackfellas, we... 
you know, three percent of the population, like maybe under, maybe just under seven hundred thousand, and that just definitely does not sort of, you know, sit with many people because if it was white followers, and you know, one percent of their population decided to meet and say, look, this is what we want and this is how it's going to be and you can do all your protests and you want, but, you know, we're just going to get this up and over so, you know, we can have this thing. Uh, all these white people going mad and crazy. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, like, for starters, that wasn't an equal process that has authority to speak for the majority of Aboriginal people. Um, and then also, like, a bunch of traditional owners came out and said, look, can you please not use Uluru as your name as well? I think this whole process was designed in a way to benefit those who really want this, and it's quite sad because, you know, we're, we're, we're a people that don't like to leave people behind, and, you know, this whole process has done that. In the process of the campaign, I suppose it's been a pretty difficult uh, thing to watch for Aboriginal people. There's um, a lot of airing of pretty racist views um, through the campaign. I guess how has that affected your view of it, seeing these things said publicly, and what do you think are the effects of that? Um, you know, I think this whole process is racist. The fact that a whole other section of the public gets to make a decision for, you know, the majority of Aboriginal Toshana people. That's racist within itself, you know, and the fact that blackfellas on yes and no are pitted against each other for the entertainment of uh, white people, that's racist as well. Um, and we're having to sort of make up the mind for some and, you know, others on the yes and no side of white people have already made their decision before even consulting blackfellas, which I think is racist as well. Um, you know, it, it's a whole sort of messed up uh, thing. I guess one of the things about campaigning for no, as you have been and other um, sovereign Aboriginal groups, is that if you succeed in the end, you've also gained a win for your Peter Duttons and Pauline Hansons and um, hardcore racists who are campaigning for no. I mean, how do you feel about that? Oh, you know, like the those racists, like they don't even come to the equation when, you know, we talk about what it is that we're doing because they're inherently against what it is that we stand for. You know, their no is because they don't want to see black fellas get up irregardless of the yes or the progressive no. You know, whether this gets up or not, uh, groups like Treaty Before Voice, Sovereign Black Movement, Black People's Union and you know, a lot of progressive black fellas out there who are voting no are still going to advocate for something more, you know, uh, because we've, we always have. We've always advocated for a better future, not just for ourselves, but for many people who are affected by, you know, this government. Um, so, like, they don't even come into the equation, you know, like, I distance myself from the racist no camp as much as possible, as much as possible, and also the progressive sort of yes place, because, you know, if this doesn't get up, they've got no feet to stand on after, you know. Um, and all I think, you know, this is going to achieve is just usher in, you know, a, a new select group of elite blackfellas that are going to be handpicked to sort of be in the in the watchful eye of sort of our governments to come in the future and be the next sort of Marcy Langtons and Noel Pearsons. 
in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a few uh, people, you know, radical black activists, including an old comrade of yours, Mariki Onis, saying, oh, we were on, you know, that kind of sovereign no side, but actually the process of campaign has changed our minds and now we're on the side of yes. Um, what have you thought of that? And this is it. Like, this is the, what we're talking about in regards to how blackfellas are being pitted against each other. You know, like, we're, we're close friends. We're allies sort of in a struggle and, and, and it's surprising, you know, seeing their decision. But, you know, people uh, make their own mind up in their decisions and, you know, uh, I knew personally uh, a while ago because, but, yeah, like, it, it's coming sort of like in this weird time and, and just seeing... You know, uh, what's happening in the media uh, right now is is quite crazy and how mainstream media have really gravitated towards it, you know, to as if they're putting the Melbourne crew against each other, like, you know, Lydia and Mariki and, and Tarnine. Like, man, the, the media is, is really effed up in, in the way that they've handled that, that process. That's a good thing to point out, I think, that the media, they love this kind of conflict, eh, between Aboriginal people and they don't report on the solidarity between Aboriginal people when it when that's happening. No, of course not, you know, and, and like I said, I would like to think a lot of blackfellas that are voting yes are voting because, you know, they don't want to be seen as siding with with racists, and I get that, you know, especially, especially black and queer uh, and non-binary trans, you know, people in our community, you know, who are sort of on the lowest rung when it comes to uh, treatment and, and how we're seen in this society. You know, I, I get that and I see that. But, yeah, for myself, uh, I know for a fact that uh, come Invasion Day, the majority of black followers that are voting yes and no, I would like to think are going to come back and be organising Invasion Day, you know, and, and, and other things as well. Like, this this referendum has just been one big headache for a lot of people. Now, tomorrow, yourself and other people in Treaty Before Voice are organising a rally against black deaths in custody at King George Square. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the thinking behind that and the timing of it? Uh, you know, we've had over 555 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission, and, you know, that's 550 voices uh, that need to be heard and voices that are still fighting for justice. And this is the thing, you know, in the last two years we've had around 30-plus Aboriginal deaths in custody while we've been going through this whole referendum process, you know, and while a lot of yes advocates are saying, oh, you know, this is why we need a yes campaign because it's going to stop things like black deaths in custody or or it's going to stop things like, you know, our country being destroyed by mining companies when in actual fact, like, you know, governments are supporting mining companies and funding uh, police presence in different communities, you know, like, uh, or, 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 or the, the police powers are becoming more heavy-handed, especially on, on, on youth, on, on black uh, young people uh, in this country as well. So, um, you know, we're highlighting the imbalance and we're hopefully, you know, going to play at the heartstrings like this whole Yes campaign is, you know, because they've they, they got no feet to stand on except for that on the moral compass of, of the majority of people, uh, that they do something for black people. So we hope that they come out and, you know, stand in solidarity uh, for this movement. And it's, yeah, just to sort of 
remember that then that, that those 550 people aren't voiceless they have family and communities that want to continue to you know fight for justice for them all right well we're coming down to the wire in terms of this referendum as you have said the of course the struggles for aboriginal people will go on regardless actually of what happens next weekend but what is your final message for people in the next week yeah definitely like for a lot of people out there that are really looking to understand the mechanics behind you know this process head to the instagram page of um treaty before voice because there's a lot of really good analysis of uh the mechanisms and 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 what it is for this treaty for voice process to sort of go through uh you know like we've got some really good explainer sort of post in regards to like uh getting funding from mining companies to you know what actual solidarity looks like with black followers to you know it's not actually 80 percent of the entire population of aboriginal people uh that want this it was only a small selective few uh, uh black followers but definitely go check out that instagram page please all right thanks very much for having a yarn with us bay all good thanks that we were speaking with Bo Spearham uh, about Treaty Before Voices campaign against the Voice to Parliament. Of course, it has been the highest profile issue in Aboriginal politics in recent times, and um, it's worth. It's been a, quite a process, I guess, of getting the different Aboriginal voices out there in public, and so I think there'll be lots to learn from it. Whatever happens next week, but. Before we get to that, you should make sure that you're making a vote that you will be happy with next week that you won't regret. So get yourself informed. Listen to Aboriginal people. Now, I've got one last interview. Mariki Onis, she's been involved for a long time in radical Aboriginal politics, and she started out as a no vote. She's moved to the yes. Let's hear from Mariki why that is. My name is Mariki Onis. And I'm from the Gunai and Gunditjmara people. And Mariki, you've been active for a long time in um, Aboriginal politics with warriors of the Aboriginal resistance and uh, different things. We're talking today about the referendum, the Voice to Parliament referendum, because it's obviously coming up very soon. I guess to start off with, can you talk about how you think this sits in the context of broader Aboriginal politics? Uh, I mean, how I think is, I mean, it's obviously the epicentre right now. It's the, the core of the discussion. Um, I think, you know, the voice to parliament is just an advisory body and it's not something that we have historically fought for, you know, certainly not what I've, I'm connected to. It is a mechanism you know, very similar to ATSIC, and it's very similar to the Victorian First Peoples Treaty Assembly. Um, so there are really good arguments against the voice, but I think it's really important to look at it in the context of what other bodies are currently existing now as an advisory. I think what sets voice to parliament sets it aside from i think other mechanisms is that this one is going to a referendum to to fit into the constitution now on the show 
today we've had um, voices and articulate voices for the both the No and Yes camp from Aboriginal people. But I think one of the interesting perspectives that you have brought into uh, the sort of public discourse just recently is talking about your shift from a position of no to yes for the voice to parliament. So do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've spoken... I think I've thought about for a really long time and I've really critically thought about it and I've discussed it with many different people, people that I respect, people that's been involved for a long time. I was at... I mean, I think, like, there's so many different ways I could cut this yarn... Um, but I think, you know, I was at the, the, the Yalara-Uluru dialogue. I saw how, you know, I witnessed that you know, people prior to those dialogues, they went around the country, but those um, consultations uh, were invite only. So people had a lot of issues with that. Um, there are issues with the mandate of um, the Uluru Statement, you know, and there are, a, you know, amazing... It, great critiques of the voice in of itself. I mean, I think that people are right in their um, mistrust of firstly the process because of what's happened in the history, but also in how the body will function given the history of this country and colonialism. But I, you know, and, you know, I've I decided to vote yes um, because I critically had to think about... Um, Firstly, like I would have voted, like the basis of my no would have been um, on the on the basis of you know if it would have extinguished my sovereignty. And in my own research and my own work, I believe it doesn't impact sovereignty. I don't think it does. Um, and I saw an article by Professor Ailey Morton Robinson, and she also shared the same view. She's also written many different books. On sovereignty, and she also shared the view that um, that the uh, voice to parliament doesn't extinguish sovereignty. So, I think for me, what you know, I tested that thinking against was, well, my mob down in Victoria. What is the difference between that and the legislated treaty, uh, the Assembly in Victoria? There's not a lot of difference. Yeah, it is. It's not going to. Um, it's not going to be the answer we've always fought for, but it's also not going to be something that extinguishes our sovereignty. And so that's a consideration that I made. And also, um, I think right now we have the rise of the far right, neo-Nazis organising in the streets for no. And so on the basis of those two points, no, the far right organising in Australia and also the fact that it doesn't extinguish our sovereignty, I came to the conclusion that it's actually better for me to vote yes. Um, no, the voice to parliament will not give us everything that we need. It is simply just an advisory. Um, those are true and fair critiques. I don't agree with any of the sensationalism that it's going to be the answer to it, all of our questions. I actually think that um, a no vote will embolden fascist and far-right politics in Australia. And I hope that um, it's a yes outcome because I don't want them to feel like it's a wind to them. And so, yeah, I just don't want my vote in any way to support the growth and movement 
of far-right fascist politics in Australia. That said, I will, you know, the Yes campaign is, you know, deeply problematic. There are mining companies involved. A lot of racists are voting Yes as well. Um, and so my, you know, my position and the suggestions that I make don't absolve Yes voters from who they are and the things that they've done. And I think Yes voters have to go further in fighting racism in Australia. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very, um, there's a multitude of layers that go into the thinking around it. And it's not been very easy because, you know, I have been involved in war and war's position is no, and I totally respect that. But I, you know, I do feel that I need to be honest about what I truly deeply feel. And yeah, that's my position on, you know, how I'll be voting. Well, there's one week left now before the vote, and I guess um, we're getting to the last point to talk to people about it. What message do you think has to go out to people who are weighing up how to vote over the next week? I think Australians will go to vote on the 14th of October, and most Australians don't know what the voice is. They'll be voting on the basis of whether they think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people matter in this country. And I don't want to wake up on the 15th and feel even more hated than I do. And so I hope that, you know, and hope is fraught, it's problematic, but I don't want to wake up on the 15th to a no vote. So my message is to vote yes and educate yourself on why you're doing it, but also know that that vote yes is not um, going to absolve us of racism. All right, thanks very much, Mariki. Thank you. That is Mariki Onus there. Uh, yet another intelligent, uh, educated Aboriginal voice with uh, a perspective on how we should be voting in this referendum when they talk about there not being enough detail or if you're unsure, vote no or something. It's like, well... We do have the opportunity to learn things. You know, if you're unsure about what's going on in this country, you can educate yourself. I certainly um, agree with that. And there's been quite a public debate, which in itself has been interesting. But, yes, we will be all voting um, or having our say one way or another to not vote is having a say in some way as well, I guess, um, next Saturday. And so... Yeah, get yourself informed. Of course, we did mention with Bo there is a Aboriginal Deaths in Custody rally tomorrow in King George Square at 10 a.m. So you can get along with that. And of course, that's the other side of it is whatever happens after the referendum next weekend. Aboriginal people will go on living in this country and so will us, the people that live on the stolen land. And so we'll have plenty of work to continue to do and on the Paradigm Shift and 4ZZZ, we'll keep bringing you Aboriginal voices as well um, in all their diversity, regardless of what happens at the referendum. See you next week.